0: Imagine someone had won the Nobel Prize and credited a big part of their career success to the mentoring they'd received. And let's say also that person then themselves mentored somebody else who also won the Nobel Prize. You'd of course want to hear what they had to say about mentoring. And that's the focus of this episode. This is Coaching for Leaders, Episode 599. Produced by Innovate Learning maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stehoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. A key conversation that so many of us as leaders want to have and need to have is the conversations where we're mentoring, where we're mentoring others, where we're being mentored ourselves. Today, I'm so glad to welcome someone who's absolutely at the pinnacle of their field and has benefited so much from mentoring and in turn has done so much with mentoring for his students, his trainees. I am so glad to introduce to you Robert Lefkowitz. He is James B. Duke, professor of medicine And professor of biochemistry and chemistry at the Duke University Medical Center. His group spent 15 difficult years developing techniques for labeling the receptors with radioactive drugs and then purifying the four different receptors that were known and thought to exist for adrenaline. In 1986, Bob and his team transformed the understanding of what had become known as G-protein-coupled receptors when he and his colleagues cloned the gene for the beta-2 dernegic receptor. Today, more than half of all prescription drug sales are of drugs that target either directly or indirectly the receptors discovered by Bob and his trainees. These include, amongst many others, beta blockers, angiotensin receptor blockers, or ARBs, and antihistamines. He has received numerous honors and awards, including the National Medal of Science, the shaw prize the albany prize and most notably the 2012 nobel prize in chemistry he was elected to the national academy of sciences the institute of medicine and the american academy of arts and sciences he is the author with randy hall of a funny thing happened on the way to stockholm the adrenaline-fueled adventures of an accidental scientist bob what a pleasure to have you on the show
1: Thanks, Dave, very much for the opportunity to chat with you and and your audience and also for that very generous introduction. Well,
0: I was thinking about that word in the book title. The one that leaps out to me is accidental. You had planned a wonderful career, but it wasn't the career you ended up doing. What changed? What made it accidental?
1: Well, I'll tell you, we all face circumstances in our lives that we don't anticipate. In my case, one of the most cataclysmic was the Vietnam War in the 1960s. So I graduated medical school in 1966, Columbia University in New York City, at the tender age of 23. I had dreamed of being a physician from really as far back as I could remember, probably six, seven, eight years old. Mm -hmm. So I was, as you said, clearly heading for a career as a full-time physician, but then there was the Vietnam War. And so there was, in addition to the lottery draft for all men over 18 in the 60s, there was a draft conscription of all physicians. The difference being there was no lottery. Uh, Uh, Everybody went in. So you were deferred until medical school graduation, in my case, 1966, and then you were drafted, typically given two more years of opportunity to do what we call house staff training, internship, and residency. And then you went into one of the four, at that time, military branches, Army, Navy, Air Force, and Public Health Service. The most desired service to get into was the Public Health Service because whereas the other three services, you were almost guaranteed to spend one of your two conscripted years in Vietnam, in the Public Health Service, you stood a chance of being assigned to one of their stateside research institutions like the NIH and the CDC as examples. So it was very competitive to get those particular commissions. I was fortunate in that I did get the commission in the public health service as a lieutenant commander and was assigned to the National Institutes of Health where I spent about 20 or 25% of my time taking care of patients who were at the Clinical Center for Advanced Studies. But the other 80% of the time, we were assigned to a research laboratory. And so I was arbitrarily assigned to a research laboratory in the endocrinology branch. And as they say, the rest is history.
0: Yeah, indeed. It's really interesting how much of your career has been shaped so much by mentoring. As you mentioned early on, so many of your early mentors shaped and offered that opportunity and that space for you to discover this passion you had for research. And then fast forward a number of decades, and you end up sharing the Nobel Prize with one of your trainees, a student who then went on to have their own successful career. I don't know how you make a better case for mentoring than that. What an incredible success story.
1: Well, I'll tell you how you make an even better case than that. You generalize a bit. So I wrote an essay, an autobiographical about five years ago called A Serendipitous Scientist, telling the same story that I just related to you about how serendipity had intervened in my career to divert me from my original plan to be a full-time physician. And in the course of doing that, I looked into the uh, phenomenon which has really interested me for a while, lineages in science. Uh, What I mean by that is is that if you look at a scientist, say like Brian Kobilka or, or anybody who's been very successful in science, and you say, whom did they train with? Who mentored them? Almost invariably, you'll find they were mentored by another excellent scientist. And if you say, well, okay, who did that mentor train with? you'll find the same thing. And if you trace back, I mean, generation after generation, you find these outstanding scientists training outstanding scientists. So I said, this is interesting. Let me look into this a little more. Well, it turns out that this program that I was in at the NIH, which had the kind of interesting and pejorative moniker, yellow berets, it was a a reference to the fact that we were a small group of of physicians who, rather than being sent to Vietnam, wound up staying stateside. So this was sort of a takeoff on the Green Berets that were uh, the hero commanders and Yellow, of course, being cowards. Of course, most of us had gone to the public health service, not because we were cowards, but because we just didn't support the war. In any case, so. That program, the Yellow Berets, had a profound, even though it was a small program, had a profound impact on my generation of physician scientists because it served as a training ground for my entire generation of academic physicians, teachers, and researchers who would become the professors at the medical schools. It was really staggering. But perhaps the single most staggering uh, metric is that In the eight-year period from 1964 to 1972, sort of the peak years of the Vietnam War, 10 of us, 10 young physicians like myself who went to the NIH, most of us with no prior research training at all, and all of us spending only two years at the NIH before going on to whatever the next thing was, 10 of us so far have gone on to win the Nobel Prize, which is a staggering statistic. So then I took those 10 people and I said, well, okay, whom did we train with at the NIH? And the answer was four of the 10 trained with individuals who were themselves Nobel laureates or who would become Nobel laureates. The other six of us all trained with notable individuals who weren't Nobel laureates, but in every case our mentor's mentor was a Nobel laureate. Okay, Mm -hmm. so you didn't have to go back any further than a scientific grandparent to find a Nobel laureate. And then if you went back, I found that about 50%, as you went back five or six generations, about 50% of all the mentors in those lines were actually Nobel laureates, which is a pretty amazing statistic. And so far of the 10 of us, three have already, including myself, have already trained a Nobel laureate. So of course, Nobel laureates is just the very tip of the iceberg, but it really speaks to the issue that there must be transferable elements in the process of doing high-level science, which can be passed by one generation to the next. And the vehicle for that transmission from generation to generation, of course, is mentoring.
0: It's one of the reasons I was so excited to talk with you, because, of course, I think most everyone has heard about the importance of mentoring. So many of us wish to seek out our own mentors, wish to be mentors to others. And yet sometimes we don't either follow through or if we do, we don't necessarily think about it in the nature that you have in your work. And there's several distinctions and principles you've surfaced that have been useful to you and your both mentors and mentees over the years. And one of the principles that you have articulated is that it's important when mentoring to teach trainees to build their careers Around problems, not techniques. Tell me about that distinction.
1: It's a very important distinction in in science, in particular, I suspect in other walks of life as well. Techniques or approaches, but let's talk about techniques because it's more specific. Techniques are almost by definition time limited, they are ultimately replaced by newer, better, more innovative, more efficient, more successful techniques, whatever whatever the field is and in science most techniques have a relatively short lifespan maybe 15 or 20 years and they're completely replaced sometimes it's much shorter and many people make this mistake they go to a, a mentor's lab to learn a specific technique figuring well okay once i learn that technique then i'll go out set up my own laboratory use that technique and the world will beat a path to my door but the problem with that is that'll run For maybe a decade, but then the technique is replaced by something completely different and they're finished. So they've basically spent their brief career with a technique looking for a problem that the technique applies to rather than picking a problem, which they find genuinely interesting and exciting, and then figuring out what's the best technique or set of techniques to solve that problem. And you might say, well, but yeah, but then what do you do then? I mean, if you don't know that technique, well, there's always somebody who can either teach you the technique, bring the technique to your laboratory or collaborate with you. So you have to learn to have what I call technical courage, a term that was was coined many years ago by a good friend of mine and another Nobel laureate, Joe Goldstein from Dallas Southwestern Medical School. You need to have technical courage. That is to say, not be afraid to use whatever technique is appropriate to solve a problem. So I think that's a very important point for uh, scientists to learn, hopefully from their mentors.
0: You say that one of the best things we can do around that and so many other things on mentoring too is to model it well. What's worked for you to be able to model that technical courage, as you call it, or maybe something you've seen someone else do well that's modeled that? I think the key to me,
1: the key to, well, not the only key, but perhaps the most important key to my style of mentoring is role modeling. Okay. And to me, a mentor, being a mentor does not mean sitting your mentee or mentees down and lecturing to them about how to do this or how to do that. It is experiential. They essentially, the mentee apprentices themselves to you. And they then essentially live with you in your lab for several years. During that time, the key is you must be accessible to them. If you're not accessible, if you're either locked in an office or in another building because you're the department chair or the institute head or who knows what, if you're not accessible, you're not mentoring. To mentor, you need to be there. okay, And then you demonstrate things by role modeling. So the key to teaching my students and fellows the importance of picking a problem, not a technique, is they see me doing that day in and day out, month in and month out for several years. And I don't have to tell them to pick a problem, not a technique, because they've watched me do it and they then internalize that lesson by virtue of the role model.
0: So much of leadership comes from leading by example, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. absolutely. To me, that's what leadership is all about.
0: Yeah, indeed. You, you really are a champion for focus. And I was thinking about a story you tell in the book about an old telescope that you had when you were a medical student, or maybe it was a microscope. (laughs) It was a microscope. (laughs) I was saying that out loud. I was like, that doesn't sound right. Wrong field. You had an old microscope when you were a medical student. And I'm, I'm quoting you now. You write, I realized that my most crucial job as a mentor is to manage my trainees in the same way I managed my own medical school microscope by constantly exerting the right amount of pressure to keep things in focus. And thinking about that, microscope and the focus, and the balance of focus with also one of the other key components of risk-taking. And I, I imagine that, that is a, that's a difficult balance of, it, on one hand, encouraging someone to stay focused on their work, and at the same time, also encouraging them to take risks. How do you navigate those two dynamics?
1: Well, you pick a very good point, and there are many aspects of mentoring, which involve balancing of two opposing forces. And the question is, how do you do do that? And, And I'll come back to that in a minute. But the answer is what I just gave you. It's by role modeling, because nobody can explain how to do those things. In fact, one of my aphorisms is something along the lines of, If something's really important, you can't look it up in a book, okay? That is to say, nobody can write down for you how to do this. The best they can do is demonstrate how to do this over and over and over again. So the story about my microscope is that during the first two years of medical school, we needed a microscope for courses like pathology and histology and cell biology and stuff like that. But then in the third and fourth year, when we were doing clinical work, we didn't need it anymore. So the practice in my medical school was when you came in as a freshman, you would purchase the microscope from a third year student for a pittance. And so these microscopes, as you can imagine, have been passed down from generation to generation for decades. They were all beat up. So I would sit in my dormitory room and I would sit at my desk in the evenings with my microscope studying slides. I would. The highest power was called an oil immersion lens. And I would have that perfectly adjusted on the scope so that the slide was in sharp focus. Then I would look away for a few seconds at the histology handbook to see what I was supposed to be looking at. And then I would come back and the stage would have slipped. So it was out of focus and I would have to refocus it again, which was a pain in the neck. But by trial and error, I learned how to put just enough torque on with my left hand on that fine tuning knob so that now I could look away at the atlas now bring my head back and things were still in focus because I had just the right amount of focus on it I realized that as you say that was one of the most important things I did in the lab the analogy would be I would go away to meetings or whatever for a week or so having discussed with each of my trainees exactly the course of research that we anticipated over the next week or two I'd go to the meeting. I'd come back, and bingo! Like my scope, the stage had slipped. They'd lost the focus on day two or three. They got a somewhat unanticipated result, and they were completely diverted from the goal at hand. So I would sort of gently put my hand back on that fine-tuning knob and and bring them back to focus. Now, the opposing force, the one that you astutely identify, is as, yeah. But suppose that unexpected finding was key to a discovery, then maybe it would have been a better idea to be diverted. True. Does that happen? Absolutely. Often? No. It's unusual, but it does happen. So how do you know the difference? Ah, this is the key. And I can't tell you, and I can't tell them. On the other hand, if we face that decision point together a number of times, over their three, four, five, six years together with me, they will internalize the values that I use to make that decision. So once again, it all comes down to role model.
0: Yeah, what I'm hearing you say there is that a big part of this is that conversation itself, that when that milestone is hit or missed, that then there's a conversation about what does focus look like and does it make sense to, as you said, keep your hand on the knob, right, as you would most of the time, or is this a case where maybe you go in a different direction? But it comes down to either way, a conversation, a relationship perspective between mentor and mentee, and that that's that's the key thing regardless.
1: Absolutely. It's all about the relationship. One of the things that I, I take the greatest pride in is that with most of my mentees, and believe it or not, not counting undergraduates, which there have been many dozens, but just formal trainee, postdocs, main group, and graduate students, I've had well over 200 trainees in my lab, plus dozens of undergraduates. And I pride myself that a huge percentage of those stay in touch with me. So in any given And of course, some of these are gone 40, 45 years already. Yeah. Uh, So some of these relationships are very long standing. But, you know, I have five children of my own, which is already a big group, but I have 200 scientific children and essentially a limitless number of scientific grandchildren and great grandchildren, et cetera. And sort of like a family to me, it's always been like a family. And I really, treasure my relationships with these folks. Even decades after they're gone, they'll call me up, much as you would call up a parent and ask for advice on this or that scientific matter. Occasionally, yeah, even personal matters. So yes, I think the relationship, a relationship of respect and often of real affection is, is an important part of, of
0: mentoring. Speaking of focus, one of the things I was struck by in your own career is the all the opportunities that you had at different times to go somewhere else, do something else, have the bigger, better deal. And one of the things that I really hear in studying your work is that it's easy to get distracted by the bigger, better deal, wherever it is to move around. But you really felt like you had a good deal at Duke and you stuck to it. And that, that was part of your success, that focus in your career.
1: You're absolutely correct. That focus persists to this day. I'll, you I'm shortly going to turn 80 years of age. And, and believe it or not, I am in the process of doing what's called the competitive renewal of my major NIH grant. And that's a very competitive process mm. to get an NIH grant, seen as a real benchmark in an academic career. And then once you get it, every four or five years, you have to rewrite the grant, tell what you've done. And now talk about what do you project that you'll do over the next four or five year period. And then it goes through a very rigorous peer review process. So I'm currently working on the competitive renewal of the grant application of the grant that was first funded when I came to Duke in 1973. And this is, I've continuously renewed this such that the years of support that I am applying for are years 51 through 54, which is sort of almost unheard of. But the people currently working with me in the laboratory, one guy was just saying to me the other day, he said, Bob, I just can't believe the focus that you have brought to the writing of this grant over the last two months that we've been working on it. And it's true, I've engaged a significant fraction of my lab in the effort, but the focus has been extraordinary. Of course, I don't look at it that way. It comes so naturally to me. But yet, to hear this trainee in my group say, I, I just can't believe the focus. Yeah, that focus is not just in, in doing the experiments, but in almost anything I do. And you're right that, you know, I've always kind of felt if it ain't broken, don't fix it. Uh, I love what I do the mix of science and mentoring, and for many years, some clinical work, although I haven't done that now in a good 15 years.
0: What are the other. Words that comes up a lot in your work with mentors is empowerment. Yes. You write in the book. People achieve their maximum level of motivation when they feel ownership over their work. For this reason, I want every person in my lab to feel like they are pursuing their own ideas as opposed to working on a project cooked up by me or somebody else. It's such an insightful passage. And I'm wondering, how do you create that kind of ownership?
1: Okay, excellent question. And again, it's going to bring us back to a point that you've so aptly raised in a different context before of when you have competing, competing instincts or competing priorities or competing forces and you have to balance them. So, first of all, one of the most important things that one does as a scientist is select one's research project or problem. When you think about it, there's nothing more fundamental to a scientist and what you are working on. In fact, in the moment you decide what you're working on, you pretty much set the upper limit of what you might achieve. I mean, if you choose a trivial question, you'll get a trivial answer, nobody will care. If you choose a problem of monumental importance, it may be so out of range that you have no chance of solving it. So choosing a problem requires a great deal of care and experience. And so when people come into my lab, I virtually never assign them a problem. It has happened, but in general not. And we make that decision together. I give them a number of weeks or even a month or two to sort of really get comfortable in the lab, see everything that's going on. And we engage in several discussions over what the research problem is going to be. But they have to completely buy in. I always say there are two keys to success in my laboratory, which are necessary but not sufficient. They don't guarantee success. But if either one is missing, the chances of success are low. Uh, and those two things are that, one, you be excited about your project, and two, I be excited about your project. So mm. that that's right at the beginning. I get them to buy in because they, are, they understand that they are a vital, a vital part of the process by which together we decide on their problem. So that's one point. But the other one is even more subtle in a way, and is to me a real key in the whole mentoring game. So there are two ways you can mismanage a trainee. One is to be too laissez-faire, to stand back so far in, in giving them independence, especially at the beginning, that they flail and essentially don't benefit from the mentorship that you can give them and that they are there to receive. At the other extreme, you can be so overbearing and so micromanage them that they're basically working almost like a technician would. The problem with that, and this is the bigger risk, actually, is that if they are successful, they do not have full intellectual ownership of the project because what's in their head, and appropriately so, is if Bob wasn't here, if he wasn't basically telling me what to do, this never would have worked. And if that's what happened, then they don't develop the confidence that having done it once and been successful, when I go out on my own, I can do it again. So one has to strike a balance between these two competing forces of micromanaging on the one part, which robs them of the empowerment and confidence they need to be successful on their own, and standing so far back that they just flail and really don't absorb the things that you have to teach them. And of course, the extent to which you need to involve yourself is different from one. Every trainee is unique. Some people come in with a 250 or 300 horsepower engine in their head. Others come in with 150. Well, they need different levels. of. So so that's one important thing, that each trainee is unique. But then Any given trainee, presumably as they progress, needs less and less management. So not only is every trainee unique, a trainee in their fourth year is different than a trainee in their fourth month. So again, there's a lot of individualization that has to go on.
0: Based on the results you've created, both for yourself but others, you've gotten really good at navigating that dynamic. When you think back, what's one thing that was helpful for you in your thinking that helped to find that sweet spot between the two?
1: Well, again, as I said, if it's important, it's very hard to explain and you just have to demonstrate it. I think a lot of this for me was instinctive and a good judge for me of how things were going was, are we having fun? So if I isolated on a given individual, his project, his work. And again, I I should point out that in my laboratory, as in many, many of the projects intersect. So people will be working on some things pretty much by themselves, but they'll be working on other things together with other individuals in the group. But having fun is, is a very important gauge to me. If my sense is that the trainee is having fun and I'm having fun working with them, that we're probably very much on the right page. Another part of all this is showing the trainee enthusiasm for what they're doing. Okay. Enthusiasm is a very, very important factor in the morale of, a, of collectively as a group and also of, of individuals. I, I think I tell the story in the book, I'm not sure, but I remember many years ago, I had the following experience. So this was a story told by one of my trainees who was today holds a very distinguished chair at cornell university but anyway so he told this story at about 20 years ago they had a big sort of fish rift my celebration for my 60th birthday and he was telling the story about how one night he was working late in my lab as a postdoc and there was another guy there another benchmate and this guy says he he was apparently relating to this other trainee how One of the things that kept him working so hard and had him there very late at night was that he knew that his project was, without a doubt, the most important one in the lab to me, to Bob, the the chief. And the guy said, hmm, how did you derive that conclusion? He said, well, just just from the enthusiasm that he shows when we talk about it. So the guy said, well, I I don't want to burst your bubble or rain on your parade, but I think Bob's as much as told me that my project is the most important one, because you can just listen to him talk uh, to me about my project, and I don't think you would have any doubt. Well, then a third guy comes into the room, and he catches the conversation. But he says, it's obvious my project is the most important one. So after a bit of wrangling, the next day, the three of them come into my office and confront me and tell me the story. And they said, well, okay, once and for all, who's right here? I mean, whose project is the most important? And I kind of laughed. I said, well, of course, all of them is the most important because in the moment that I'm talking to any one of you, I get so excited about your project that in that moment, it is in fact, the most important one to me in the whole lab. I said, half an hour later, when I'm talking to him, that may change. So that kind of enthusiasm expressed to a trainee is in and of itself empowering. Now the thing is you can't fake it. You can't fake enthusiasm. And alas there are people whose personality structures are such that they even though they may feel great enthusiasm, they cannot express it or demonstrate it. And that's something that can be worked on. But I'm fortunate in that I am by nature a very enthusiastic person. And the parent of my personality is such that I I don't hesitate to demonstrate that because it's very infectious, as we all know
0: as is the fun you mentioned a moment ago. And that's the word that came up for me when I was reading the book. I shared with you prior to this conversation that a good judge for me of a good book is, especially when I'm preparing an interview, is I forget I'm preparing an interview and just get so engrossed in the book. And that's what happened for me. There's so many wonderful stories that just captivated me about your career, but also so many lessons for all of us. And, and, and that, I think, leads me to my, my final question. You, you've you had such incredible success in your career. You've helped others to have so much success. And of course, so much of learning and growth is also changing our minds sometimes. As you reflect on the last few years, certainly since you won the Nobel, what's something that you've changed your mind on since then?
1: Well, that's a very good question. There have been two things that come to mind. One, and this I can't really say it's since the Nobel. It's been going on longer. And and in general, I don't change my mind about anything rapidly. I change my mind, of course, as we all do, but it's usually more a process of evolution over a significant period of time. So I'm a perfectionist and uh, I am very demanding on myself and on those who work with me. I, I expect very high performance. And I think compared to when I was younger, I have significantly mellowed, shall we say, in accepting uh, the reality, which is very important. That we all say, you know, all men are created equal. It's sexist, of course. All men and women are created equal. But you know, that's in terms of our rights, in terms of our abilities, our gifts, and our deficiencies. We're not created equal. In fact, pretty much no two people are created equal. We're all unique, and. I've learned to temper my expectations of people after I've had a chance to really assess what I think of their capabilities. That assessment happens over a period of months, sometimes a year or two, as we work closely together. But I've learned that you you can't, as I mentioned, I think earlier in our conversation, you can't have the same expectations and goals of somebody who's absolutely brilliant from somebody who may have be less gifted in, in that regard and there are all kinds of gifts too there's all kinds of genius there are there are some people who are they're essentially technical geniuses they can carry out experiments that very few people would almost like a, a top athlete is able to do things that others couldn't do but then there are others whose gifts are just coming up with cr- brilliant creative ideas others aren't so great at coming up with ideas but they are better at critiquing other people's ideas so as you learn what people's strengths are, you can learn to encourage them to develop those without having sort of a, a uniform expectation of, of superior performance from everybody. So I think I've really softened in that regard and sort of changed my views. The The other thing where I'm changing is just, you know, I am approaching my 80th birthday, as you heard, but, you know, I realize that I'm getting... Late in the game, so to speak, and my views of exactly what what my own roles and goals are in my career at this stage are yeah it's clearly changing. I mean, I don't see myself as making the kinds of transformative discoveries that I perhaps did uh, when I was forty, fifty, even sixty years old, but more in terms of the mentoring and and trying to give back to the next generations of scientists what I have been fortunate enough to to learn over the years. So those are a couple of ways in which I think I've been evolving in recent years.
0: Bob Lefkowitz won the Nobel Prize and is the author of the book, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to Stockholm, The Adrenaline-Fueled Adventures of an Accidental Scientist. Bob, thank you so much for your work and your wisdom. Grateful for it.
1: My pleasure indeed. Enjoy talking with you, Dave.
0: If this conversation was helpful to you, several related episodes I'd recommend. One of them is episode 398, What You Gain by Sponsoring People with Julia Taylor Kennedy. Julie and I in that conversation talked about the distinction between mentoring and sponsoring, both critical, both important in most of our organizations and our work and the call to take the next step, to sponsor folks as well. She made the distinction in that conversation that mentors talk with you, sponsors talk about you. And the call for leaders to be even more intentional about who we're sponsoring in our organization and the call from Julie and I in that interview to be thinking about especially those who may be traditionally underrepresented in your organizations. How can you do a better job of sponsoring them? Episode 398, an important conversation that complements this one. I'd also recommend episode four. 37, How to Know What You Don't Know with Art Markman. Art and I talked about metacognition, the thinking about what you know and what you don't know in that conversation. Many of you told me that was a really helpful way to think about how to get access to more ideas, to more perspective. And of course, one of the things Art and I talked about in that conversation is mentoring and the distinction between some of the traditional programs out there and also organic mentoring. And of course, he's a big advocate for Organic mentoring and building relationships, as we've talked about many times on the show over the years, the power of being able to build those relationships and to get perspective from others that sometimes you don't get in the traditional programs. That distinction we discuss in detail in episode 437. And then finally, I'd recommend episode 567 how to lead and retain high performers. Ruth Gotan was my guest on that episode. We talked about something that's so important and so necessary for every organization. How do we really engage the top performers in our organizations. Of course, mentoring one key place to do that, many others as well. And of course, critical for us to be able to not only as high performers ourselves, I know many of us uh, are or aspire to be, but also how do we do that for the others inside our organization? A uh, great compliment to this conversation as well. And I'm also thinking about Ruth because she introduced me to Bob. Thank you, Ruth, for that introduction as well. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. Uh, Sometimes I get asked, how do you remember all the conversations you've had over the years, all the folks you've interviewed? And the the truth is, I don't remember everything. Of course, I remember uh, almost everyone that I've talked to. I remember that conversation I referenced with Julia. I remember that conversation I referenced with Art. But I didn't remember that Art and I had talked about the distinction between traditional mentoring programs and what he calls organic mentoring. The way I found that is by using the free membership. I use it as much as anyone else to be able to surface the things that are most important for me right now. And I'm inviting you to do exactly the same thing. We've set up the website to be freely accessible to you so you can find the thing that's going to be most critical for you right now. Maybe it's mentoring. Maybe, as some of the episodes I just mentioned are tagged under, it's talent development, how to develop others right now. Uh, Maybe it's on coaching skills. Maybe it's handling difficult conversations. Whatever you're facing right now, there is a place for it inside of our episode. Library where you can find some critical conversations that will support you in your next step. All you need to do is go over to coachingforleaders.com if you haven't already, set up your free membership. It takes just a couple of moments. And one of the key benefits of free membership is to have full access to the entire episode library, searchable by topic. You can get all the episodes on any of the apps, but we've set it up on the website so you can find the episode that's most relevant to you right now. That's one of the many benefits of free membership. Coaching for Leaders is com is where to go for that next monday i'm glad to welcome scott anthony barlow back to the show he is going to be back to show us how to discover meaningful work join me for that conversation with scott next week have a great week and see you back on monday